Three, two, one. Our brains are designed to make meaning. That is what it does. We, you know, as, as we write in our book and we quote Joan Didion, we tell ourselves stories to live. So we're always trying to make sense of the chaos of our lives. There is no one else who has lived in your body in this moment in time with your mind, with your experiences, with your flesh and bones. By the very nature of that, your perspective is important. The idea that if you don't write the stories down, that you're not telling a story is the mistake. You're always telling a story. So it's not like you can get away from telling a story. You can't, there's no cheat. Today's storytelling session on Podcast Noir is a little special because we have not only one, but two storytellers in the truest sense of the word because they both recently co-wrote a book slash journal called What's Your Story? Rebecca Walker has contributed to the global conversation about race, gender, power, and the evolution of the human family for three decades. Since graduating from Yale, she has authored seven best-selling books on subjects ranging from intergenerational feminism and multiracial identity to black, cool, and ambivalent motherhood. Rebecca has written, developed, and produced film and television projects with Warner Brothers, NBC, Amazon, HBO, Paramount, and has spoken at over 400 universities and corporate campuses internationally. When she was 21, Rebecca co-founded the Third Wave Fund, which makes grants to women and transgender youth working for social justice. She was named by Time Magazine as one of the most influential leaders of her generation and continues to teach her masterclass, The Art of Memoir, which I recently did and absolutely loved. It was an intensive one-week memoir program that really got my gears turning for writing. And fun fact, she also happens to be the daughter of the magnificent author Alice Walker, who wrote one of my favorites in an all-time classic, The Color Purple. Alongside Rebecca today is Lily Diamond. Lily is a writer and advocate harnessing the power of digital media to democratize wellness and uplift women through storytelling, accessible practices for inner and outer nourishment, and revolutionary acts of self-care within our earth and human communities. She is the creator of internationally beloved blog, Kale and Caramel, and author of best-selling memoir cookbook, Kale and Caramel, Recipes for Body, Heart, and Table. Lily's writing has been featured in Vice, Healthy-ish, HuffPost, Refinery29, and more. Her work is informed by two decades of study, certification, and teaching in the art and practice of meditation and psychosomatic therapies. She is a devoted co-conspirator to organizations decolonizing food and wellness for all. Lily was educated at Yale University and lives in Maui, Hawaii, where she grew up on occupied native Hawaiian land. In this guided storytelling session, we not only talk about their stories, but also your story, the process of finding your story, the power of tapping into story. Every conversation is a guided storytelling session, and this one just reaffirms that even more. They actually have created a guide for your stories. Both Lily and Rebecca together have created the What's Your Story journal, which we will be talking about. It's one that I personally love tremendously. I know you will enjoy this conversation. Let's get started. 
Lily, Rebecca, I've been looking forward to this so much, especially because this podcast is all about guided storytelling and you two are literal storytelling guides. You both in your own right and together have been not only cultivating your own stories, but you have been teaching people how to share their own stories and even recognize what their story is. So before I get started, I actually wanted to ask where you're coming from right now because you're both in really beautiful places and I just want to channel the energy of the land that you're on. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm in Altadena, which is about um, 20 minutes outside of LA, maybe 30 minutes outside of LA. Um, I'm right at the base of the San Gabriel Mountains, which are incredible. They're covered in fog right now. Um, it's a very beautiful, I'm very fortunate that right before COVID, I moved from the city of LA um, to, this, to this sort of much more green and lush and um, more sensitively developed um, uh, piece of earth. And obviously it's one of the questions we, that we ask in our book is, you know, who lived on this land before you? And the land that I'm on right now was once inhabited by the Tongva people who were very instrumental in creating a, a, a worldview that was about interdependence with nature and with all of its creatures. And I really can feel their spirit when I open my mind to it and remember them, which is what I'm now engaging more in doing um, as a result actually of, of our work together in What's Your Story? So there's a lot of great green energy coming in. My pup is running around out there somewhere and he might or she might come in. We think that she may be trans, that they might be trans. <laughs> <laughs> so they may come and, and give us a little bit of interspecies love. So that's where I am. Wow. Cheers to the mountain people, the people yeah. who have chosen mm -hmm. to live in the mountains. What about you, Lily? I am also on the, the side of a mountain. Um, so a little bit different. I'm not quite at the foot of it, but I'm, yeah, on the side of um, Haleakala, uh, which is here on Maui in Hawaii. Um, this is where I grew up, actually, and uh, this is Native Hawaiian or Kanaka Maoli land. Um, and I've been thinking a lot recently, actually, about the uh, sustainable land management system that the Native Hawaiians used to sustain their communities here, um, which were called Ahupua'a, and they ran from mountain all the way down to the ocean, um, kind of these like pie or triangular shaped land divisions that within those land divisions um, was contained everything that the community needed to survive. And the, you know, the Native Hawaiians lived entirely sustainably for millennia until colonization. And then within like, you know, a century of colonization, 90% of the, pop the Native Hawaiian population had been decimated. Um, and a lot of those ancient Hawaiian systems of land use management um, had already been disrupted so I've been thinking a lot lately about what it means to live within um, the particular ahupua'a or land division that I, where I grew up, which specifically is um, Kama'ole, that's the name of the land division where I grew up, and like what are the resources within that land division from mountain to ocean, 
where I live that um, are meant to sustain the population that lives in this in this area. Like, could we could we do that? What would that look like? Um, so. Those are some things that I'm thinking about on this little piece of land. Just and casual. It's beautiful here. Mm-hmm. Just casual. That's I mean, was just just chilling, just <laughs> contemplating the depth of it all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love it because I've been cultivating a relationship with the with the land that we live on, and just trying to spend time meditating on it and getting to know it. And I was listening to a podcast yesterday about. It was on the Goop podcast and it was someone who had moved to a farm and who had spent time cultivating this regenerative farm and the relationship between like nature and human. And I, I'm very like new to understanding all of this. So I actually, I really appreciate everything that you've both shared and it kind of inspired me to change slightly the question that I'm asking next, which is a question I always like to open my conversations with, which is usually, how is your heart? But I would like to ask you both, what is the story your heart is telling you these days? Hmm. I love that That's question. Yeah. Do you want to start, Lily? Do you have something that comes sure. to mind? Yeah. The story that my heart is telling me these days is a story of how we all learn to live with tremendous loss. And um, it's something that I think we have all been confronted with collectively over the past you know, year or more. Um, and previously, it's a part of our culture that I think we have been taught to kind of hide away and deal with in private and not address the effects of you know tremendous loss, whether it's individual loss or community loss. Um, and a part of that and part of the result of that is that we don't really know how to deal with loss. And so, um, I, you know, for me, loss has been a really big part of my life. Um, I experienced tremendous heartbreak in losing my mother um, when I was 24 and um, other, you know, intense romantic heartbreak at the same time. And in the wake of that, discovered so much new uh, territory of my heart, of myself, of my mind. Um, that was really about being honest in a way that I had not ever been before. And so for me, as I've been in the collective space over the past year of, you know, being with COVID, losing family members to COVID, you know, watching this tremendous, you know, this number of humans, the tally of the dead growing and growing, um, and understanding, you know, that I think, I don't know who first said this, but that in many ways, uh, what we are experiencing, what we have been experiencing, you know, the effects of it is not that dissimilar to war and to the ravages of war. And then, you know, in addition to that, the incredible Black Lives Matter uprisings, the understanding of um, the reckoning that is necessary uh, in, you know, particularly white America in dealing with white supremacy and looking at loss and grief and the 
the incredible pain that we, so many of us, um, have either inflicted or suffered or both as a part of this ecosystem um, of, of real violence and, and, and loss. And so I've been, I've been sitting with all of that because in many ways, I have to say, I feel embarrassed to say this. So I'm just going to say it, <laughs> but I feel like, um, it makes me want to cry. Like I've felt more, uh, held in a space of companionship around so much of the feelings that I have felt and carried over the past decade, um, than ever before. Um, because I don't feel so alone in the kinds of um, suffering and pain that I have held myself. And of course, that's not to speak or touch on, you know, the, the cultural um, pain and suffering that many uh, communities of, you know, Black and Indigenous people of color, Asian American, Pacific Islander people experience. I can't speak to that at all as a white person, but yeah. Wow, thank you yes. for sharing that. I appreciate you setting the foundation of this topic of, of grief and loss and the role that stories play with it for us because that's something I want to dig into early on in this conversation. Rebecca, what about you? What is the story your heart is telling you? It's so interesting to listen um, and to realize that my heart is telling different stories at different moments. And and the and the story that my heart is telling me right now um, is actually one of of um, of excitement and of joy and of a sense of coming through a long period um, of of feeling tremendous heartbreak and sadness and frustration and rage and upset about. The culture that we're living in and the profound inequities and um, historical systemic uh, tools of oppression you know that has been a story that i have been holding for many many months and years and and now the story that i'm holding right now has to do with a, a kind of excitement and thrill and um and and happiness around so many of the conversations that I've been having with other black and brown people in the last weeks that have made me feel encouraged about how emboldened and how, um, how much stronger we all feel collectively. And even in the face of so much resistance to our freedom and our, our expression and our brilliance and our genius, there is a sense of, um, of, 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 a, of a refusal to be any smaller than we, than we really are. Mm. And so the story that my heart is, is telling me now at this very moment is one of um, just absolute um, uh, opening and, and, and expansion of some of these relationships and, and excitement about the conversations that are bubbling up and the opportunities for real um, creativity and 
intervention and transformation of the culture. So I'm, I'm feeling very, very warm and, 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 and positive. Though, again, you know, the stories of our heart, just like the stories of our minds and the stories of our cultures are constantly changing. So, you know, tomorrow, the story of my heart is telling me maybe very different. But right mm -hmm. now, that's, that's what it's telling me. So I'm very grateful, actually, that it's feeling the way it feels. <laughs> Both of your answers come from a place, I feel, of intimacy with what story means to you. And something that I have kind of picked up on is when you are a storyteller or when you work in the space of story, you can get lost in like the abundance of story. But I sometimes forget that many people don't see story the same way that I do. And a lot of times people don't even think they have a story or at least they don't have a story worth telling. Can you guide us through why people may believe that and why it is not true? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that um, sometimes we are, um, our, our stories about ourselves and the world are, are kind of implanted in our minds before we even know we have a mind, right? Mm. So you are, you are, you know, they talk about this sort of old discussion of this was, you know, when you're a boy or you're a girl, you're, you're treated like a quote unquote boy or a quote unquote girl from, you know, the moment you're in the womb and, and, the, and the sex is found out. And so you are given a story before you even have a chance to understand that you can create a story that's separate from the one that's been projected onto you. And mm -hmm. I think that that is something that is um, endemic, you know, that is something that is pervasive. And so people come into the world and grow up thinking that, um, that their own separate experience, their own um, ability to make meaning of the lives that they're living is is something that is separate from them that is that is that is not really a part of of their own making that they don't have the agency to do that because the story seems so entrenched and have been given to them and they don't realize that they're not the absolute fundamental truth because they're not deconstructing the idea that the story has been given to them <laughs> you know and and so um, there's a way in which, you know, when we start to activate this process of people retelling their stories or rewriting their stories, we're really asking people to understand that the mind is, is always making meaning of everything that it experiences and that it is up to each of us to, to sync up um, what is true for us and what is real for us with the world around us and that and that we have the ability and the agency and the responsibility and the creativity to write a story that is true and not one we have inherited and so um so to answer your question i think so many people don't realize that they have their own story that they can write their own story because they have been so indoctrinated into the story that they have been told by the culture you're not right. good enough you're heterosexual, your body should look like this, you should work in this way, you should marry in this way, you should have sex in this way, all of the different things that, that don't, or that, that aren't interrogated. 
And, and that is part of our work is to say, you know, put a lot of those stories aside. They are not your own and figure out what what is your own story? What do you want to write? Mm. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add to that something that I learned when I first met Rebecca from her in uh, back in 2009. I took Rebecca's art and memoir masterclass. This was one of the first big flashing light points that I remember taking in when I first was in this space with Rebecca. And it was um, her saying that, you know, there is no one else who has lived in your body in this moment in time with your mind, with your experiences, with your flesh and bones. And by that very, by the very nature of that, your perspective is important. What you are experiencing about the world right now and this moment in history is important because nobody else knows what, what that is, what that means, what that feels like. Nobody else knows what you are seeing and experiencing in your heart and your body. And I think something also that I have really appreciated from um, the first moment I was introduced to, to your work, Noor, and reminds me of this, is, um, is how pivotal it is to appreciate and understand that our unique story will, by very virtue of its being spoken, help someone else feel less alone. And it really doesn't matter who you are, you know, if you think you're important or not important or how many freaking Instagram followers you have or, you know, if you have a huge family or a tiny family or if you have a lot of money or no money or whatever it is, it does not matter. Our human experiences and the stories that we tell serve to serve as this incredible connective tissue and it really is those stories and the opening that we have into those stories and our willingness to tell them that brings us together the connective tissue is such a key factor in this rebecca you talk about the neurological and physiological impact of story on our minds and bodies can you take us through how stories impact the grooves in our minds and our thought processes and what it does for better or for worse to our bodies. Yeah, I mean, why don't I I give a a very personal example? Um, You know, when we, um, well, first of all, you know, just just sort of scientifically, you know, we are, our our brains are designed to make meaning. I mean, that that is what it does. We, you know, as, as we write in our book and we quote Joan Didion, we tell ourselves stories to live. So we're always trying to make sense of the chaos of our lives. And so our minds, in order to do that, in order to give us a sense of stability and a sense of identity and meaning and purpose, our minds just begin to gestalt all of the experiences that we're having and 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 put them into a narrative that makes sense that can be reassuring that can be um that can be um sensical you know that that gives us understanding that that's what the mind does you know um it makes stories it it helps us understand who we are in the context of stories 
in response to stimuli, right? So the eye sees the stimuli, the body feels emotion, you know, blah, blah, blah. One of the stories that, that my mind um, uh, in, uh, inherited was that as a biracial person, I was, um, initially I was a movement child, so I felt that I was a promise of the future, right? So there was this incredible positivity my parents met in the civil rights movement. I'm mixed race. They believed in a kind of not post-racial, but a better future where people could come together. And so that narrative really was great for my endorphins. Like it was great for my mental health. There was a sense of positivity, of hope that it was embodied, you know, that I could actually feel, right? Mm -hmm. And then when my parents divorced and the, and the narrative shifted and people began to talk to me about being a child of a broken home, about the death of the civil rights movement, about the rise of black power, about the impossibility of togetherness, then that started to create a kind of breaking down of my psychic and, and, and physical feeling of, um, of well-being, you know, I started to literally, literally feel broken and, and sort of confused. And, um, and so that story, you know, did not support my well-being and my health, you know, because it was a story that began in my mind. But then, then we know that the mind-body separation is a false dichotomy. And so everything started to feel uncomfortable. And it wasn't until I decided to leave and abandon those stories, you know, and I did a lot of this with writing my first memoir, Black, White, and Jewish. Um, it wasn't until I started to leave the story of being broken and embrace a story of being not a tragic mulatto, but a magic mulatto, <laughs> or, you know, not a person who was... Um, split in any way, but who actually could transcend the idea of dualism, right? So I wasn't separate. I wasn't broken. I was completely cohesive within a whole that was bigger than the identities that were being projected onto my body, that I began to feel a sense of integration and wholeness, not just mentally, but physically, you know? And, and so... Um, and, and I remember writing in Black, White, and Jewish, I'm really feeling this, that as I wrote that story and I wrote the moments of pain and confusion, I remember feeling as if those were, were etched in my actual musculature and my body. And that as I wrote them, it was like erasing or releasing a scar with, with almost every chapter. You know, it was like, oh, there's a clearing there, you know? because I had been holding the ideas so long that they had taken root. And so the process of putting them on paper was a process of, of, of moving them on, you know, letting them move and creating clear space everywhere for a new, a new narrative to be written. So I think there's this inextricable connection um, that, is, that is deeply important, you know, and, and we talk about that a lot when you have peace of mind you know, your body often feels a lot better, <laughs> you know, and, and, and we don't want to kind of emphasize this idea that if you're having some discomfort in your body, it has to do with how you haven't worked out some issue, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it is important to understand the ways in which um, our stories, our mental stories affect every part of our lives. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the storytelling session. I just wanted to share something with you. 
If you're looking for a good deed opportunity these days, my family has been working to alleviate local homelessness for over 10 years. We have a foundation called I See You. And we make care packages for people experiencing homelessness. We make family food bags with food staples and give out grocery gift cards to families in need and more. Everything is done by donation and 100% of the money goes towards community members in need. If you'd like to donate, you can through Venmo at at ISY Foundation or PayPal to contact at isyfoundation.org. If you or someone you know is in need in the DC, Maryland, and Virginia area and could use our help, please DM on Instagram, ISY Foundation, or shoot us an email. Now back to our story. When you're talking about your childhood story and the story of hope and then that transitioning to the narrative that was being put on you about, you know, being from a broken home, the complete pivot of from positive to negative, both of those narratives seemed like they were the stories that people were telling you about you. How do we as human beings who are constantly looking for reassurance and looking for ourselves and other people's stories and listening and adopting what people tell us about ourselves to ourselves when we aren't secure enough, how do we sever that whatever it is that funnel that allows for other people's interpretations of us to come through and and us adopt it as truth and actually like recognize what do I actually think about myself? Like, what do I believe my story is? Because I feel like you can continuously peel back layers, but you even said it. Our story is written for us before we even have a mind, before we're even born. So is it even possible to write your own story for yourself fully? I think that it's imperative that we do that, you know, um, and I think that people have been doing it forever. You know, in the if we look at the history of colonization, if we look at, you know, the ways in which cultures have been decimated all over the world, if we look at, um, you know, this idea of a dominant narrative coming in and silencing all of the different stories and, and ways of existence of people all over the world, you know, we, we begin to understand um, um, the mechanism by which that happens and we begin to understand how to resist that mechanism right because we start to understand you know it's like you know you start to understand that the furniture you're bringing home is off-gassing so you know the Hmm. the answer to that is to like either not buy off-gassing furniture put it outside for you know however many hours you know what i mean we 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 create a a solution to the problem and part of that is i think and, and we're really trying to do this with the book is to to really understand first of all that you've been given this story and that you're carrying it to face it and to realize that you've been holding it a very long time and to assess whether or not it is actually helping you or hurting you or both right and then to figure out what of it you want to hold on to and what of it you want to actually transform and change. And so that is a process of, um, that's where it gets hard. You know, that's where there's a struggle because the, the, the draw, the pull of the old story is so strong that you become afraid to let it go because you don't know what will be there when you let it go. Who will I be? 
But then that's where faith and your own imagination and your own creativity and your own understanding of the ways in which we've been trained not to write our own stories comes in. And you, and you, you sit with that discomfort and you believe that you have the power to change your story. And then you start slowly to, to, to go inward. And as Lily says, you know, so many people are looking for answers to be given to them. But with our book and the work that we're doing, you start to look into your own mind and your own, your own being and, and find a story that feels more authentic to you. You look at the moments that you have digressed, that you have diverged from the dominant story, and you honor those moments. And you see, you know, this is an example of me taking agency, of owning my own self and my own story. And let me figure out how to build on that, mm-hmm. you know? And that can take, you know, you can you can make that change like this, or it can take you weeks, or it can take you months, it can take you a lifetime. But for us, you know, what's your story is about strengthening that muscle that allows you to imagine a different way of being to stop yourself when you are habitually engaged in an old way of being that is not your own and to move forward in building on that and creating a completely different way and a completely different life and a completely different story. Sometimes it isn't even by choice. Lily, you went through a tremendous experience of grief and loss in a short amount of time, two big events in your life. How did that shatter what you believed to be your story and how does someone go forward after something like that? Yeah, when I was twenty. Uh, Three, my mother was diagnosed with very late stage uh, endometrial cancer, and the diagnosis happened to occur in the same week as uh, my partner at the time ended our relationship. Um, and I want to be clear, it, just in using that language, even though it's not a big deal, but I always feel like, you know, there may be one person who actually says the words that end the relationship. Um, but I, I usually feel like it's both people that are participating in whatever leads to, to that ending. Mm-hmm. So anyway, in this case, he happened to be the one who said the words. <laughs> and uh, and in, in that space of time of that week, I remember feeling like I had no idea anymore what my life was supposed to look like because um, I was not living... Um, in Hawaii at the time. I was living with my partner in Michigan, um, far across the country, and I was building this life there um, with him. We were um, working and teaching together at the time. um, I had spent many years in study and practice um, of yoga, meditation, Um, Buddhist and Hindu philosophies and I was um, teaching full-time that was my work Uh, and um, we were doing all of that together and really building life together we talked about writing books together I mean it was it was a whole world an ecosystem you know as you do with partners that you create and uh, and then um, my mother who really had been my best friend and in many ways you know I from the time that I was young have held a lot of 
of um, sort of questions and, and struggles around identity and belonging. And that was something that my mother also struggled with. And um, she was, didn't think she was going to be able to have kids. Um, she got pregnant with me when she was 38. And in having me, I think she experienced a sudden sense of, um, I finally have someone. I finally have someone who is really just, um, who, who I belong to, who belongs to me, and we are in this together. And so I always felt that with my mother as well, that, that I had this kind of deep sense of um, belonging, of you know, the mirroring of, um, of a, a mother and daughter. And um, of course, you know, we had in many, many huge struggles and challenges in our relationship as well. Um, but there was that, that real sense of closeness. And so suddenly, you know, she was given this, um, terminal cancer diagnosis and, um, my, you know, my relationship and the world that I, I had occupied in Michigan also was falling apart. And I was just like, oh, I don't actually know what my life is supposed to be going forward. I don't know where I'm supposed to live. Like even as baseline as that, I was like, where am I supposed to live now? I don't know. I have no idea. You know, who who am I supposed to be on a day-to-day basis if this person that I thought I, I was, that I was becoming um, in the space of my relationship and the professional work that I was doing because the two were so commingled, if this isn't really maybe the person that I am supposed to be, that who, you know, who am I supposed to be? What is the work I'm supposed to do? Um, and it, it reminds me actually, and I wanted to share this as well, so this is the perfect place to do this, but it just in relationship to what Rebecca was sharing of, um, I think a lot about two scenes from this movie, I Heart Huckabees, that I'm just obsessed with, with these two scenes, not the whole thing. I mean, it's a great movie. It's fine. But there are two scenes that speak to this so perfectly, um, both to the question that, that you asked Rebecca and to this moment in my life. And um, have you seen this movie, Noor? I have not seen this movie, but okay. I'm very excited to watch yeah. it. We must watch it. It's about um, two existential detectives. They're played by Dustin Hoffman and Lily Tomlin. And um, they become embroiled in the lives of this cast of characters, uh, one of whom is played by Jude Law, and he's like this corporate exec. And he's he's sort of like an ad salesperson for the equivalent of like a Walmart or something like that. And in every meeting that he goes to, he tells the same story that's sort of like this story that builds him up. It lets people know, it lets everyone in the room know that like, he's someone who they should respect, who they should listen to. Mm -hmm. And the story is about him um, sort of knowing Shania Twain in this very deep way (laughs) and he's so (laughs) proud of it and these existential detectives as part of their work they go around and they just watch what you do like what are you doing with your life and so over the span of i don't know you know whether it's weeks or months they record him telling the same freaking story over and over and over again to every single person that he meets and wants to like have some kind of a, you know, make an impression on. 
Mm-hmm. And when they then are meeting with him and they replay all of these clips to him and they say, you know, on mm-hmm. this date, here you are. On this date, here you are. And he's sitting there and you can see he's just got, he looks paler and paler and sicker and sicker. And all of a sudden he just starts throwing up mm-hmm. <laughs> because he can mm-hmm. no longer bear the insanity of this story that he is telling about himself to every single person that he meets. And he has suddenly been confronted with how ridiculous it is that he is carrying this as some kind of, you know, definitive point of his selfhood, of his humanity, of like who, you know, who, who he's supposed to be in the world. And he hears it for the first time. And so I think very often, we get to that point, we get thrust to that point, not by Lily Tomlin and Dustin Hoffman following us around with, <laughs> with a recording you know, device, but by this, the painful circumstances of our own lives, um, by things like loss and, and you know, a sudden shift in, in the tectonic plates of what we thought was the steady ground of who we were of what our lives appeared to be and all of a sudden you know a kind of rupture happens to shift that and we get the opportunity to look back and go oh my god what i have been saying about myself the way that i have been looking at myself every day uh, the stories i've been telling to you know to myself and to everyone else about myself are so dysfunctional i can no longer bear to continue forward with the weight of that dysfunction on me. And so for me, um, I, when, you know, my mother passed away a year and a half after the diagnosis, um, I ended up moving back home to Maui um, and, uh, and, you know, to care for her, to care for myself. And I continued on the path um, of teaching the, professional path that I had been on, but after she died, um, about, uh, about six months after she died, I started hearing this voice every time I would go to teach a yoga class, like I would, I would start the class and I would hear this voice say, stop teaching. And that was, what did the voice sound like? Like myself. It was not any, it wasn't some, it wasn't like some mystical anything. It was just like clear as a bell. That is mystical. (laughs) Hearing yourself, hearing yourself that clearly is, is magic. Yeah. And it was, and I remember describing it at the time that it was clear as a bell. That's what I would say. Clear as a bell. Stop teaching. And there was nothing fancy about the message. You know, it was super inconvenient because that was how I made my living. (laughs) And so um, after, you know, that was happening for long enough, I thought, okay, well, I, I was also um, in a lot of physical pain um, that I thought I had a, um, I thought I had a, 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 what's it called? Torn hamstring. Turns out it was sciatic nerve Mm. pain, but that's like a whole other story that we won't get into. But but I was in so much pain um, that I actually like I couldn't I couldn't practice what I myself was teaching any longer. And I would go to, you know, other teachers classes 
And you know, at the beginning of a class, um, back when we used to go to classes in non-COVID times, you know, they'll say like, you know, let, let us know if you have any injuries. Um, Mm -hmm. and I would be like, well, you know, I can't bend forward or backwards. I can't twist side to side, but like, but I'm a yoga teacher, so I'm fine. Like I can take care of myself. (laughs) And so, um, and, and at the same time, like I was getting this tremendous kind of like spiritual questioning and a lot of that came from having been with my mom um, through, you know, her illness and her death, watching her reevaluate her belief systems, how she wanted to die, how she wanted to eat. You know, she was a lifelong vegetarian. Her oncological nutritionist wanted her to start um, eating some meat. And so that was like a really big thing. And at the time, I was a super hardcore animal rights activist vegan. And I was also preparing food for her and she, you know, I had to reckon with like this shame that I saw in her asking me to prepare, you know, chicken broth for her. And I was horrified because I realized at that moment, like I would, I I had no problem whatsoever cooking, you know, chicken for her. It was in fact the first time I was cooking chicken. And beyond that, (laughs) and beyond that, like, it was a real moment of truth for me because I was like, you know, I, if I'm being honest, I would probably, you know, if someone told me that going out and like figuring out how to harvest my own chickens would make my mother better in that moment, I would figure out how to do that because that's what's important to me. And so I suddenly realized like, oh, a lot of the things that I have taken on as truths from other people, from, you know, other teachers that I had, from other ideologies and systems did not actually hold up to the fire of my real lived life and experience. That when it came down to it, I actually believed a lot of other different things. And so that was yet another moment where it was like, oh, the stories that I have been telling, you know, about myself, about the way that I live they might not actually match up to what what is really true for me, which can only wow. be known like in the moment in, in real experience. And so, you know, I had this voice telling me, you know, stop teaching. And um, some friends, actually the friends whose uh, office that I'm in now offered, they said, well, if you really want to... Um, if you really wanted to try this out, because that was my plan. I was like, I got to just try it for three months, like, and see if, in, if I take three months off, is this real? Because this was like my serious life path, like what I was going right. to do. And so they said, you know, I did, I felt like I couldn't because I needed to be earning money so that I could pay for rent, et cetera, et cetera. They said, well, just take the time, live in our, you know, guest house and see how it is. So I did. And my plan during that time was that I wanted to get back to the the really first and, and only thing that I've known as um, in my creative self as a constant, which was writing. And it just happened that I um, I was planning, I was like, I'm going to go to some, you know, fancy writing workshop, like on the East Coast, not on Maui, because I do not want to do some like crystal healing writing workshop, <laughs> which is a lot of... Uh, sometimes what happens here on Maui. And so um, I just, in in like the month before, something like that, got this email 
from the Yale alumni group here um, that Rebecca, this you know best-selling author, was coming to Maui and was going to be teaching this art memoir course, and it started the day after I was starting this sabbatical, this teaching sabbatical. So, wow, yeah, and I was like, oh my god, I'm obviously doing this. So I did, and that was how Rebecca and I met, and um, yeah. Yeah. It's so beautiful when life shows you when you surrender that everything opens up for you. Every possibility, every like you just let things happen. I've realized even in my own life that when things when I start to feel stuck, I have to ask myself, what am I trying to control? And do I have to let go of the control at the moment? You can't just one time be like, I surrender. I'm going to trust that everything's going to work out because our anxiety and our fear, which is trying to protect us, is always going to try to protect us and we always have to keep ourselves in check. And then you kind of have to be like, what can I control? And Lily, in your story, literally letting go of control brought you and Rebecca together. And it's comforting to hear that this is what happened to you after such a massive loss. How did you begin to, and this is for both of you, how does one begin to tell themselves new stories that can withstand immense grief, loss, and trauma? Because it can be so hard to believe the stories that we need to believe in the moments that we feel like nothing. It's a great question. I think, um, you know, listening to Lily this time, made me think of um, one of the moments that I met one of my most important teachers in life. And I was very, very depressed. And I remember feeling a sense of hopelessness about um, a very important relationship in my life. And I was really debilitated by the depression and hopelessness. And, um, And I actually remember that I could not get out of bed I was so depressed, I could not get out of bed. And he came and helped me get out of bed and and helped me to begin to um, be in a new space. He began to help me talk about why I was feeling the way I was and what the problems were in the relationship and, and to kind of ask me questions that slowly led me out that started to to help me understand that the problem wasn't in me that the problem was really in them <laughs> you know do you that, remember that what some of the questions were uh, well they were very pointed questions you know when was the last time you were happy you know when was the last time you felt strong when mm. was the last time um what were some of the things that were said to you that were injurious to you that made you feel like you couldn't get out of bed you know, what are the things that you might want to get out of bed for? <laughs> you know, what have you been feeling this way your whole life? Have you been feeling this way for many years? When when did has it gone? Has it been intermittent? Um, what do you tell yourself in these moments? What are the messages that you're holding when you feel like you can't get out of bed? Are those voices that are in your mind 
um, telling you those things? Are those voices your voices or are they someone else's voices? And he, and he really tried to help me separate um, my own feelings about myself from the person's feelings about me that were not um, supportive and to kind of get a little wedge in there, right? And, and, and create distance from the person who was very injurious. And, and so I think to go back to how to do it, um, and I think that in some ways I was part of that process for Lily and have been for many people, you know, through my work and, and you know, of, of writing my story, changing and, and interpersonally with many students. Um, he was that way for me. And, and I think what you, you do need another person often. It's not something that, you know, we are, we are fundamentally interdependent beings, you know, this idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, doing everything alone, solving your own problem, you know, that's kind of bullshit. You know, at the end of the day, um, you know, we didn't come into this world alone. We were not. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the storytelling session. I just wanted to share something with you. If you're looking for a good deed opportunity these days, my family has been working to alleviate local homelessness for over 10 years. We have a foundation called I See You, and we make care packages for people experiencing homelessness. We make family food bags with food staples and give out grocery gift cards to families in need and more. Everything is done by donation and 100% of the money goes towards community members in need. If you'd like to donate, you can through Venmo at at ISY Foundation or PayPal to contact at isyfoundation.org. If you or someone you know is in need in the DC, Maryland, and Virginia area and could use our help, please DM on Instagram, ISY Foundation, or shoot us an email. Now back to our story. So what role did your friendship play in creating What's Your Story? Yeah, that's such a great question. I mean, our relationship really started as a mentorship. Rebecca was a teacher for me, is a teacher for me, and a mentor for me still. Um, and so it started from that place and over you know, more than a decade has evolved into a friendship and collaboratorship and, and all of those elements, but I think coming into the space of uh, Rebecca's Art of Memoir Masterclass and really um, learning from not just my own experience taking the course, but also how she worked with so many uh, students was a window into the first inspiration around creating What's Your Story, which was that we wanted to give people a way to take some of the juiciest um, spaces of that that they tapped into in the art of memoir with them outside of of that initial one week period. Um, so I'll let Rebecca say more, but that's my my initial answer. Yes. Mm-hmm. So is the journal supposed to? teach us that we all have a story that's worth sharing to ourselves and then others absolutely um and and actually when we when i when i think back on how the um the journal evolved um 
there was a period when Lily was really supporting me in teaching the master class, um, at which we realized that the scope of the conversation around writing your story could be much broader. Um, and it would include things like um, how to think about time, managing your time as a writer, as a creative person, how to think about managing your money as a creative person, um, how to think about working together with other people or not as a writing or creative person. <laughs> and so we started with this idea of right to well-being, which was um, uh, more of a, a larger offering to people that wasn't quite as intense as the master course. But we, we both kind of had a sense of, of wanting to make something larger that could be of service to more people, that could touch on many more themes. And, and so really, I think the journal evolved out of that, you know, wanting to help people to get in touch with their stories, not just that they had been carrying since childhood about their identity, about their trauma, but also larger stories about how they were engaging with technology, how they were engaging with work, how they were engaging in the present moment, um, the stories they were writing in the present moment, um, really became top of mind and and um we we really sensed that that was necessary you know and so so the journal really came out of that that broadened view um in addition to our deepening relationship and 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 i think shared desire to uh sort of our shared instinct to kind of you know always look for people's stories as a way to connect with them right i think lily and i share that like a real longing to want to know people at their core by understanding who they are and who they think they are and then wanting to support them um in um in evolving you know and that and hence the the subtitle you know um a journal for everyday evolution a real understanding that if you help people to excavate that story in all the different realms of their lives they can actually you know up level as as they say these days you know you can actually um, reach a different a different point of being a different way of being so it, it, it's it was a lovely dynamic process i think when i really look back you know and, and take in all of what you mm -hmm. know right to well-being encompassed yeah and there were two primary stories that we really wanted to rewrite as we went into the creation of right to well-being and one of them was the idea that um, self-expression and you know creativity is kind of siloed to quote-unquote artists or writers that like if if you don't identify mm -hmm. as an artist or writer then you don't have the fundamental right to somehow express yourself or even understand yourself perhaps in the way that quote unquote artists or writers do. And we really wanted to abolish that. And then the second was that we wanted to get away from this idea that being an artist or a writer um, involves some kind of inherent suffering, mm, right. which is so often um, the case. And that's why when we initially called it right to well-being, W-R-I-T-E to well-being, <laughs> we wanted people to have this sense of like, oh, I am right off the bat. I am 
rewriting this story that as an artist, as a creative person, I have to, I have to suffer. I have to suffer financially or, you know, or in any of the myriad ways, emotionally, spiritually, in order to have an interesting enough story to, to write it, to tell it, to make art out of it. And um, that is deeply culturally embedded and, of course, connected to many, many, you know, other strains of capitalism and oppression and all of the, you know, the ways that art history has been uh, siloed over the millennia. Um, but without getting into that, just kind of fundamentally, we wanted people to see the creative practice as um, as a liberation practice, as a way of setting themselves free. And it actually connects to the work that you're doing right now, Lily. I mean, I think we both do, but that you're specifically doing, which is about democratizing wellness and, and really understanding that um, everyone has and should have access to the notion of um, reaching catharsis through a creative process that you do not have to be a professional artist in order to have that moment of realization and growth that leads to well-being, you know, and um, and I think Lily has gone on to really explicitly do that work. And I, I see that that through line very clearly as we talk about it right now. It's very important. And, and it's really conditioned by patriarchy, really, the whole patriarchal narrative of the artist, which is about the man being the artist, the woman staying home and supporting the artist, and, and sort of being in the shadow of this great man who is doing this great work, who gets to have his great, you know, um, cathartic experience and recognition, while she's pretty much, um, you know, left to her own devices and not really considered a true artist. You know, so so we were not only wanting to you know, so, so that is all part of this conversation of democratizing the creative process in order to support, you know, real change individually and collectively. What happens when we all consider ourselves artists and storytellers in our own rights? Well, I think we're, we're yeah, that is a great question. I mean, I think that we start to understand um, our own power and agency and and we begin to realize that we have freedoms that we didn't didn't know we had that we that we have the possibility of writing and living in a way that has not been sanctioned by the culture that has not been dictated by the culture so we have access to a lot more um, of our own authentic selves and once we have that, we are engaging in a real subversive um, movement against conformity, against mediocrity, against a kind of, um, you know, minimization cog in the wheel, um, you know, product that, that is being churned out and, and exploited by this machine that we're living in. I mean, you know, the more we find what's true to ourselves, the less we we think that um that we're the same as everyone else and that we have to be uninteresting <laughs> you know dumbed down version of, of a human being you know because really the standards in our culture are pretty sad in terms of what your story should be and how you should live your life you know i mean the, i was just thinking about white mediocrity and how 
you know, white mediocrity is so elevated in our culture and that becomes a kind of standard of a life, you know, and, and, and then there are the sort of outliers who are allowed to have extraordinary lives or who choose to, or who insist upon having them. And then great, you know, books are written about them and they are incredibly revered, but they're considered outliers because really what's standard is this kind of mediocre average life. And I think understanding that you have the power to, um, to write an outstanding life. It's not just a happening. It's not just a miracle. It's not just you're a genius. You actually have agency to do that challenges mm -hmm. many, many things and, and opens the door for a much more creative and, and, and more powerfully and interestingly imagined future. Yeah. And I think the book is designed to get you to each one of those stations along the way to feeling that you mm -hmm. actually are the author of your own life. You know, it's designed to take you from the space of your mind to your body, to your relationships, to your work, to your technology, living with it, you know, with, in the natural environment that we all inhabit in our communities, our homes, all the way through to our mortality and really give us the space to say, what story am I writing in each of these arenas? And your question about, you know, what happens if, if everyone considers themselves artist, if everyone considers themselves storyteller, it reminds me of, um, I have this, uh, I have a friend that I text this acronym to back and forth at specific moments that um, came out of reading Sheila Hetty's book, How Should a Person Be? And uh, the acronym is ITWAI, and it stands for, is that what art is? And sometimes something <laughs> will happen, and we'll just write to each other, ITWAI, like, oh. And it reminds me of, of your question, because I realized that um, we have so been taught, as I said before, that like, that our creativity, that our expression should be set aside, should be something that is separate from the rest of how we live our lives. And if we are to, you know, as you suggest, say like, I am an artist in the creation of, of my own life. I'm an artist in the, you know, the way that I participate with my community, in the way that I choose to, you know, approach the incredible stresses that's, you know, that I come up against every day. Um, I think there's a, as Rebecca said, like there's a tremendous freedom in that. And that small shift of like, I'm just thinking about how when we text each other that it really shifts my whole perspective. Like I, I see, I suddenly see whatever I was looking at differently. Um, and so I think the book is, is a space to do that as well. Just to give, a, a, you know, concrete examples, when I look at my life, I've made very different decisions about how to live my life. And some of them I don't disclose publicly. Some of them I write about explicitly. Um, you know, I decided at a very young age to, for instance, challenge feminist orthodoxy. You know, I decided to live as a bisexual person. I decided to, um, you know, write things that would challenge, you know, people that I loved very much. I decided to go into a deep 
um, teacher-student relationship with a Buddhist teacher in a way that was very um, controversial, you know, amongst many people. I, I have, I think, always made decisions um, that felt true to me, but that were thought of as really anathema to many people. And people would really think, you know, gosh, you, you know, you went to this Ivy League school, you had this kind of privilege, you could have followed this track, you could have married this lovely, stable, you know, man. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, there are all of these things, but, but I, I never wanted to do that. And so I think, um, and people always ask me, do you regret some of the choices that you made? And I actually don't. I don't regret any of them because they feel incredibly authentic to who I am. They've brought me to the place where I really want to be. And I, I want that for everyone. You know, I want that for everyone. Mm. And it's not simply a matter of privilege. It hasn't always been a matter of privilege. I wasn't born into the, the kind of privilege that I eventually, you know, found myself in and I made really controversial decisions even then you know <laughs> um and it was about being given the permission and the support by my mother specifically to be a self-defining woman and human being on this planet and and to really understand that my ancestors and the people that fought for me to be alive did not want me to just conform they wanted me to have the freedom, you know, to express myself, to think my own thoughts, to be a sovereign self, you know. And so I think this is about liberating people's minds so that they're not colonized by this culture. I resonate with, with everything that you have both said. But one thing that kind of keeps playing in my mind is the element of fear and how there is a sense of comfort so many people enjoy and don't want to compromise, even if it means they'll feel a little bit sad, even if it means they'll feel a little bit spacey, even if it means they'll feel a little bit whatever. I think a lot about immigrant parents who have come to countries like America, leaving a dictatorship, leaving civil war, leaving whatever it is, and have found a level of success, have started from scratch to build what they have. And it's so precious and it's so special. And you don't, they don't want to touch or play with anything that might open a Pandora's box and might make them question everything that they've ever believed or everything that they've ever felt to be true or whatever it is. And so they hold on to these ideals, but they're stunting their own growth, even if they don't think they are. And I think about these people a lot, especially now as we're entering an age of accountability, we're speaking up more than we've ever spoken up. It's oftentimes like children of immigrants and first gen kids and people who have seen their parents and their grandparents and their ancestors go through so much and being like, you didn't have to go through it the way that you have to, that you had to go through it. You deserve more. You deserve uh, comfort. You deserve joy. You deserve to know that joy is a good thing, you know? There are so many of these factors that, that come into play. And sometimes I think we don't actually start to consider our stories or the stories that we've written until we're older. And that's what I thought. I used to think, you know, I've been asked to write memoirs since I was like 21 years old. And I always felt shame around that. Like, why would I do that? I'm not there yet. I'm not whatever. I didn't do as much as like my, my parents or my grand. Like I struggled with that. And even though I was speaking about my story and I still felt like it was important for people to, to share and to understand. But then when I recently spoke to my grandmother about her sharing her story, 
she said something like, I want my secrets buried with me or something along those lines. And I felt really heartbroken over that because I felt like her inner child, her young self, who was, you know, married off at 15 years old to somebody 16 years older than her. And, and, and although they have a beautiful, loving marriage and relationship, she was still robbed of a childhood and still robbed of all these things. And so it's like being able to see validation in your truth and in your story and know that like it's okay to face the things that hurt you and it's okay to grow from those things and it's never too late. What do you say to the people who think it's too early to share their stories and it's too late to share their stories? Well, I think that, um, first of all, I mean, just in my very humble opinion, I, I think there is no too early and there is no too late. You know, I, I think that um, there is this extraordinary way in which by sharing our stories, you know, Joan Didion wrote, we share our stories in order to survive. We tell stories in order to survive. And I think that is um, both a connective tissue that serves us as humans um, but it's also truly a way of remembering who we are, as you said, you know, carrying the, the legacies of our families forward and also rewriting those legacies so that we may um, continue to, to live um, with and in them in a way that expands upon and evolves the culture that we come from. And um, I, you know, specifically, I'm just thinking as you were talking, I've been watching Rami on um, Hulu and <laughs> just looking at the way that, I mean, that story is such a perfect analog, really, in so many ways to what you were just sharing about that, like, that resistance, uh, the both the push and pull of the deep need to belong and to feel like we are a part of something and really deeply a part of our family and of our ancestry and of our, you know, religion or spirituality, whatever that might look like. And at the same time, um, encountering ourselves in, in the context of the, the current lived world of our bodies and asking ourselves, as, as you say, not just the questions around accountability, but also a kind of, I think, as I don't want to put any words in your mouth, Rebecca, but I feel like as you would say, like the sanity of it all, like what is the sanity of this moment of how we're going to choose to, to move forward together as um, the community, uh, you know, within our families, but also as the larger human community. And I think a part of that is really honoring the stories that are emerging both fr from, from both sides, from both the very young and from, you know, those who are soon to be our ancestors. Yeah. Mm. I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, in, in terms of, um, I was just talking about it in terms of Curios. I've been watching the Australian Open. Um, but anyway, I'm not going to go there. Um, you know, it's, an, I think the, the immigrant narrative is, is very similar and different from the African-American story and also the Jewish story. Like I see a real, um, uh, similarity in, in all three of those experiences. Um, so we are, um, all of us reckoning with a history of pain of struggle of 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 understanding that we are coming 
to our new place, escaping the old place. And it is our, our, our need to create a new life, a stronger life, a better life for our children. And the pressure to do that is tremendous. And the struggle that we're coming from is tremendous. And then that next generation is carrying the burden, the weight of that, and wanting to do the history of their parents, those stories justice, by showing up and doing better and, and, and proving that they deserve to belong and, and trying to be that thread. And then there's another generation after that who inevitably has a little more privilege. In the Jewish situation in America, we're talking about assimilative into, into white, assimilation into white privilege, more and more access. You know, with the immigrant community, we're talking about the sons and daughters of the professional class that were the first generations that, you know, the, that came and were cultivated in a specific way. In the African-American community, we're now talking about, you know, um, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth generations who are for the first time actually living in a way that they have the freedom to define their own story, but are still feeling tremendous pressure to prove that we belong, to prove that we're as brilliant, to honor our ancestors, but at the same time to to express a kind of individuality and and um, liberation from those old stories in order to become what our ancestors worked so hard to allow us to become. <laughs> and so there is a real struggle, as you're saying, to both honor the old stories and the present stories and create space for the future stories for people who are in touch with the multi-generational struggles of their beings and culture and selves. So I, I really resonate with that. And, and I was just listening to, to Curios and feeling like this is a man of color who has had enough privilege to be able to make choices about how he wants to play and live his life. And he doesn't feel the need to have to be perfect in the way that, say, a Tiger Woods felt he had to be perfect, or Serena and Venus felt they had to be perfect, or, you know, because he's now in the next generation and there's enough so that he can have this individual perspective. So it's very interesting. And I was thinking, well, where is that going to go? You know, what does that mean for the next generation? Because we don't just want to become so individualistic that we abandon our responsibility not just to our ancestors, but to the collective, you know, because then you're just completely assimilated into capitalism and individuality and individualism. And, you know, so it's a real struggle, I guess is what I'm saying. And, and when you think about, are you too old or too young to write your story? I mean, to take it over into that area. I think the question is really, how can you write your story in a way that is authentic to all of your ancestors in the past and what they would want for you and all of the children not yet born and what you want to model for them in addition to obviously writing a story that is supportive of your present and who you want to be in this moment so so there is a tremendous responsibility or a tremendous you know amount of awareness that i think 
we we as writers as memoirs specifically <laughs> have to think about you know who am i writing myself to be i'm in conversation with the past and i'm setting a model for the future so i think the most aware writers are holding all of that so with black white and jewish i was i read every memoir about a biracial person that existed and i knew i was holding their stories right historical you know and i was thinking how can i honor them but not be them and how can i set a model for the mixed race people who are coming who need to not be this other old story and then how do i position myself in the middle to be who i really am so it's a real it's an interesting you know situation so i don't think it's as much about age and like are you old enough as much as it is about are you aware enough? Are you ready to, to, to do it in a way that is meaningful, not just for yourself, but for, but for the past, the present, and the future? You know, it's, it's, is your story ready? Is your awareness ripe enough? Is your insight present enough? I was told by some that I was too young but I knew that if I hadn't written my memoir, I was going to have a psychological break of some kind. I really needed to write it. You yeah, needed, I needed to. to. I had to. There was not going to be anyone who could tell me that I was too young or too old or not right to write a memoir. I mean, that was just not going to happen. But, um, but I am very grateful for, I remember Ann Godoff, who's a great editor. Um, I don't know where she is now. Random House, maybe. Brilliant woman. Who, who in our meeting when I was going around my book said, you know, you should really write this now because later you won't be able to. You won't have the, the energy and the drive and the need to tell this story. And she was right. I could wow. never write that book now. I, I don't have the, I don't need it. But at that time she recognized that for my, a certain kind of maturation to happen for me, I needed to do it at that moment and and she was right and i'm so glad that she gave that advice now she didn't buy the book but but revenge did so that was okay but you know it's an well, interesting but, but thing moreover to think of. your story your story is different yes. now like you wouldn't write the. it's not just not just that you couldn't write the book now in terms of you know the energy of it but you literally couldn't write that same right book i'm not now. the same person because it would be a completely different right. book yeah yeah. Why does everyone need to go through the practice of writing their memoir, even if they're not going to publish it? Well, so this gets this is interesting because so first of all, I just want to make clear that the, the journal is really for everyone. It is not just for intended storytellers, writers, memoirists. Fantastic if that is how you want to approach it. And absolutely, you could go through, you know, the, the whole process of the book and at the end, experience um the kind of catharsis that rebecca is talking about i think probably multiple times through through the process um but at the same time it's really for it is it's for it's for anyone it's for everyone regardless of whether you feel perhaps you have you know a memoir to write and i do think getting back to you know this this the question that you have around the hesitation that people may feel to begin the process of sharing, particular particularly older generations, 
I think about how, you know, there's this inclination with older generations. My, my father is 83 and he also like he is so excited about the book, could not love it more. He literally keeps it by his nightstand. And the other day he had brought it out um, into like onto his deck and I was with him on his deck and we were looking at it and I said, oh, because there was a, a pen like inserted into a page, you know, one page page holder and I was like oh are, are were you writing in it and he goes no 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 I don't write in it and I said oh well what do you do with it <laughs> and he said oh well I think about the questions you know I think about them and I said well you know you can write you can write in it it's okay like and if you don't like what you write you can I'll bring you another book like so <laughs> and you can have another one and he was like no 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 I don't I don't want I don't want to write those things down so it was a very similar impulse and I've heard it, have, I've had other um, uh, people write in and share, oh, would this be appropriate for, you know, my 90-year-old mother? She's very hesitant to share her stories, but I really want her to do it before she goes. And, you know, what should I do? And this sense of, of this reticence of um, on the part of, you know, older generations that is completely on the opposite end of the spectrum to, if you look at Gen Z on, like, you know, TikTok, all of their forms of social media, where I'm sure that to a certain degree, there's a sense of older generations watching what's happening with the proliferation of how vocal younger generations are. And they're going, well, I know I don't want to do that. So if that's what I'm supposed to do, like, that's definitely not going to happen. And so I think to just give um, people of all ages a kind of private, sacred space that is really our hope with the book. Like, yeah, sure. You know, there are also 80 person Facebook book clubs that are doing it. And they're, I'm sure, sharing all their answers. And there are families that are bringing the questions to the dinner table. And that's amazing, too. But at the end of the day, those, you know, 220 pages or whatever it is, they are yours. They are 100% yours. And so to get to, you know, back to your initial question, which was why should everyone write their memoir, if we take memoir out of that, it's like, why should everyone just write their story? Why should everyone become a storyteller, an active storyteller of their own life? Mm -hmm. I think to, to have this sense that, you know, going through this process and being able to excavate and then um, really look at and understand and then rewrite the stories that we have carried with us that have you know, oppressed us, that have made us feel joy, that have built us into the humans that we are today, and then gotten us to a, a new point where we've decided, okay, it is time for me to have some deeper insight because there is some part of myself that wants to feel a little bit more freedom or a little bit greater understanding of, you know, who I am and who that is, what that means in relationship to my family. Um, and to know that these are the pages where you can do that and that they can be shown to no one. Nobody has to see them ever. They can be yours and they can you can go through them and then you can completely transform everything about your life from everything you've learned about yourself, you know, in that space or or nothing at all. And both are are perfect. Yes. Thank you so much, Lily. Thank you yes, so and much. Yes, and also when you, when you, when you, what you're saying, it's like um, the, the the idea that 
if you don't write the stories down that you're not telling a story is the mistake you're always telling a story so it's not like you can get away from telling a story you can't there's no cheat you're always telling one so really the idea is can you control the one you're telling can you understand that the one you're telling is controlling your life and thus can you get in there and rewrite it so you can have a different life because there's no there's no not writing your story um and I was thinking about my great-grandmother who came from, from Kiev and who was fleeing the pogroms at the turn of the century. And she, when we would ask her, are you from Russia? Where did you come from? She did not want to talk about it. She, she, it was absolutely verboten. You do not bring it up, da-da-da. And when I think about whether or not she actually needs that, that is her story. <laughs> her story is one of not telling that story. And... Right. I'm not sure that that's a bad wow. story. I think that she did that story. She told that story. She lived that story in order to survive what she had seen. Mm -hmm. And she lived that story of not telling us in some ways to spare us knowing what she had seen and lived through and wanting to give us something um, that the telling of that story would have taken away now we can judge we can you know it's unclear if her not telling it was actually beneficial for us but i respect that choice and and she and she had agency in deciding to tell and live that story of not telling that story yeah and that's the kind of agency that we want people to have and also just to let people know that they do yes. have a choice, that the story isn't written Absolutely. for them. The story that they tell themselves isn't written for them. And every single word that they say out loud, your body, your mind, your spirit is hearing. So be careful with the language that you choose and be careful with the stories that you tell yourself because you will believe them, but you do have control and power. I mean, this is this has been so enlightening and so beautiful and inspiring. Thank you both so much. I always like to end the conversations by asking our guests, what do you know for sure? I know for sure that the earth is unwaveringly there for me and that brings me great sadness simultaneously because of all of the ways that um, we use and abuse it but yeah thank you for sharing Rebecca um I think you know I know for sure that human beings if motivated and given the right ideas can get into their minds and retool and tame the negative stories and live better, happier lives as a result. I believe in, in the human power to do that. I know that that for sure is true. So. Thank you both so much for sharing that. I know it's a big question and thank you for sharing all of your stories. You're both brilliant storytellers and um, I truly, truly appreciate all of the time that you've given us. Well, we're us. so happy to be here with you, Noor. Thank Nora. you, Nora. We're big, 
we're big supporters and, and respecters of everything that you do. So thank you for having us and sharing this time and space yeah. and allowing us to talk to your community. I hope you enjoyed the storytelling session. For more Rebecca and Lily, you can buy their book and journal, What's Your Story, wherever you get your books. Check out their site, whatsyourstorynow.com. And you can follow Rebecca on Instagram at I am Rebecca Walker and Lily at Lily Diamond. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Your reviews really, really help support this podcast. If you'd like to watch the video version of this podcast, it is up on YouTube or Facebook, both slash nor. And to you, our listener, I want to thank you for your listen and support. I'd love to stay connected. Here are some ways I'm telling stories these days. You can text me if you are in the US or Canada. Yes, it is me, not a bot. I also text you intentional daily questions of the day. My number is 301-246-8894. You can follow us on social, on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook and YouTube at Noor and on Instagram at AYS. My Twitter, Snapchat, and Clubhouse is N Tagori.